You know, I used to pride myself, well, not pride, pride myself on the titles I would give sermons. I always thought they were really clever. But trying to make this easy on Robin and knowing that I don't don't finish up often until Sunday morning, and therefore come up with the real title that I should have. The real title, instead of those who speak and those who minister, it really should be as through the dirt. Okay? It really should be as through the dirt. I'm continuing today to teach you things that I have always been taught wrong. And it's not that I'm putting a new spin on these things, but as I read truly orthodox teachers, common commenters on the Bible, things become rather absolutely clear. There is one thing in this sermon that is my own take that I have not found anywhere else, and I will let you know when I get there so you can disregard it if you like, okay? But today in our studies in Acts, we're at, like I say, another passage where I've been taught something all of my life that ain't necessarily so. This passage today, which is Acts uh, 6, 1 through 4, just four verses, but uh, has always been presented to me as the calling of the first deacons. Well, it is, and it isn't. Luke never calls them deacons in this passage. And the fact of the matter is, this was written late enough that Paul has already given in uh, uh, 1 Timothy the guidelines for elders and deacons, the qualifications. Deacons were an office in the church at the time this was written. And yet Luke does not call these men the choosing of the seven Deacons. Instead, the apostles, when confronted with the problem we're going to see here, say it is not fitting that we should leave our teaching to wait tables. Okay? And that is the word, believe it or not, deacon used there. The apostles saying we're not going to leave our teaching to wait tables tables to do the work of a servant because I've also always been taught that deacon means servant well again yes and no and and we're going to cover all of that kind of thing today deacon and servant have a relationship that is closer to a synonym than it is to a description In John 2, Jesus and his disciples have been invited to a wedding in Cana. Unfortunately, due to poor planning or a thirsty crowd, the wine has run out. Jesus' mother tells him about the problem. and Jesus says, and you all know this, Woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And it says in verse uh, 5, Mary, his mother, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, in this usage, diakonos, used here, means servants. Proving absolutely nothing of my point. I just wanted to put that out. Because we're going to look at a few examples of how the word diakonos, deacon, is used in the, in the Bible. In Matthew 22, again, talking about a wedding, this is the parable of the wedding feast. There was a man 
at the wedding with no wedding garments. And the king was apoplectic. Verse 13. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where, we, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this case, diakonos is attendants. Okay? Used that way. And it would seem a little unfair uh, that the man be thrown in the outer darkness because he'd been pulled off the street. However, it has a bigger point. Of course, the, Jesus is talking about hearing the gospel preached but not putting on Christ's righteousness. So, that has to do with nothing. I just want to make sure, you know, I wasn't being incredibly flippant. In 1 Corinthians 3, 5, Paul asks, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Diakonos here is a preacher of God's word in the form of both Apollos and Paul. In Romans 15.8, Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs the diaconos, the deacon here is Jesus Christ, okay? Called a servant to the uncircumcised. In 2 Timothy 5, the diaconos is an evangelist. It says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And in Hebrews 6.10, it says, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And a diagnose is one who serves God and his saints in this. So it is a multi-purpose word. It's useful, but what does it actually mean? Okay, what is the actual literal meaning of diakonos? And I gave it to you early. The word actually means as through the dirt. And so now I had to sit back. It's often used of waiting on tables or being a busboy, basically. Okay, which is what the waiting of tables was there. They didn't have a menu. And I sit here, and I, and I could not find, this is my teaching, I could not find this in anything. Why does diakonos mean as through the dirt, and yet apply to waiting tables or being a busboy? And you've all seen Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, right? Magnificent painting. It's a magnificent representation of a European Renaissance meal dressed up to look like a Middle Eastern Last Supper, which it definitely was not. In the Middle East, you ate reclining at table. The table was a low table. You sat on the floor. You reclined at table. Many houses had dirt floors. The upper room where this Last Supper is taking place had not a dirt floor, but I'll bet you 10 to 1 it was a dirty floor. Cleaning, attending table was as going through dirt. You're on your knees. 
You're in a dirt floor. This is, like I say, I found this nowhere, but looking to see why, where the relationship is to clear the table, to serve people at table. You're on your knees in the dirt. We, also, we do see in John 13, 25, at the Last Supper, the real Last Supper, not the Da Vinci painting, John, when, when Jesus tells them that he is about to be betrayed, John leans back against Jesus to ask who it is. So this is the reclining at table. This is the picture of how they ate back then. And that's why a, de- a deacon is often called a table servant. It's also, you know, if you've ever been a deacon, you'll understand that a deacon gets the dirty work in the church. Uh, trust me, I've been one, and I've been a bad deacon just to let you know. I have not been a good deacon in my time, and there's reasons for that. The reasons are I don't see things that need to be done very well. Most people who know that I'm a, a high-end carpenter working million-dollar houses say, oh, we don't want you to look at our house. And I, oh, I'll never see anything wrong with your house. Trust me on this. I don't know why that is, but I don't see the flaws in people's houses, even though I might be hired to fix them at some point. So this is also why I'm a bad deacon, is that I do not see the things that need fixing around a church or around people. And that is the honest truth. A deacon is the one who takes care of the dirty jobs, not like a mafioso mafioso boss, uh, but they see the -the behind-the-scenes jobs that no one else sees but are essential to every organization. Today's passage comes from verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6. I'm going to read them all and then we'll go through them. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And there it is, the only mention of deacons in this passage. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. As we've seen before, the church is exploding in size. The last figure we've seen is 5,000. The number, like I said before, will never be shown again. We're never told how big the church gets. John MacArthur points out that that 5,000 was men only. So if you count women and youths, because apparently children were not counted. Now, when we have children in church, I count them, okay? I count everybody. But uh, the, the infants were not counted in the church attendance, just the youths, the women, the men. And John MacArthur points out it might have been as many as 25,000 people in the church in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was a city of 40 to 50,000 people at the time. Which is where I said maybe perhaps half the city of Jerusalem was Christian at this time. But there was a complaint that threatened to split the unity of this new church. It was Hellenists against the Hebrews. Now, I pointed out also before that 
about 85% of the Jews in the world, and by that we mean the Roman world, lived outside of Israel. However, Hillel, as we saw, was a citizen from uh, the Babylonian exile who returned to Jerusalem for his studies of the Torah. And just as he returned, many other exiles, and the exiles, I'm not talking that they were just exiled, like you would do Bonaparte, you know, uh, they were born and raised in another country, but at the end of their lives, just as people now want to return to Israel to be buried in the Holy Land, they were doing this at the time of Jesus, coming back from foreign lands, settling in Israel to be buried in the land of promise. These were older people. And I don't know if you noticed this, but wives generally outlived their men. And so what was left of these exiles coming back were largely widows. They were poor. The main portion of the poor in the Christian, early Christian church were widows. So keep that in mind when we talk about this. And there was a tension already in Judaism between the returning Hellenists and the Hebrews. Hellenist simply means those who speak Greek. But there was a phrase very close to Hellenist, and I didn't write it down so I can't tell you what it was, that means those who live like pagans. Okay? This is what we have going on in Judaism. And it bled over into the early Christian church because who were the Christians that formed the early Christian church but Jews and Jews of both the Hellenistic and the Hebrew persuasion. You will remember that a little bit later on in uh, uh, in not a little bit later on in Acts, but in Philippians, Paul is giving a defense of himself as a teacher of the Jews. And he calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews, right? Well, Paul was born in Cilicia. He was born in Greek-speaking lands. Paul spoke Greek. But he was establishing his bona fides. This is, he, he sat at the foot of Gamaliel, He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says he was uh, circumcised on the seventh day. He's pointing out that he has lived his life as a Jew and not as a pagan, not as a Greek in that passage. So that's also what that passage is all about, is this tension between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking, well, the Hebrew Jews. They didn't all speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. So... Now, like I say, the Hebrew, the widows made up the majority of the poor in the new church. And unlike the local Hebrew widows who likely had family in Jerusalem to lean on, the Hellenistic uh, widows who had repatriated to Israel had left their friends and family behind. And when their husbands died, they were on their own. And remember, this is a very family-oriented society. If the husband in Hebrew dies of a Hebrew Jew or Christian woman, the family is going to take her in and take care of her. But not if they're living across the Roman Empire. These women are on their own. 
And for a thousand years, the Jews have taken care of their widows inside of Israel themselves. They had set up, long time before the, Jew, the Christian religion came around, a system for getting food to um, Jewish widows and a monetary fund to take care of other needs that might arise. This also was expected in the Christian church that was being set up. And I say, say being set up because truthfully, and we'll get to this later, the church wasn't being set up. The church came into being. Nobody planned the church. It sprung up out of nothing. Well, out of something very real, but from nowhere it came into being immediately. And now we have these growing pains. Verse 2 says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the apostles call all of the disciples together, all of the original that had been with Jesus through the trial, the uh, crucifixion, the resurrection. All of these were the disciples that we're talking about. And said, it is not right that we should give up preaching. And the word right here, though a proper translation, does not convey really the meaning. Other translations, and believe it or not, and you're going to picture me sitting in this huge stack of books. And my stack of books is big enough. But I read 46 translations of this. Bible Hub is a wonderful thing. It's all there on one column, okay? So it wasn't digging through 46 different Bibles, you know. But other versions say it is unacceptable for us to neglect the teaching. Or it is not appropriate to neglect the teaching. Or it does not seem fitting. Which gives a better sense, I think, than of it is not right the apostles finish here by saying that they should not give up their teaching uh, to wait tables. And as we've seen, this is the only use of deacon in this passage. Verse 3 here says that when confronted with the fact of the neglect of the Hellenistic widows, the apostles said, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. I have been accused in my time of being a, uh, a typical man. Uh, a problem only exists to be solved to a man. If you are going to bring me a problem so that I will commiserate with you, don't do it. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about the problem. My mind immediately goes to, how do we fix this? And I often preach that mankind has not changed from the garden to now, and here's proof. Verses 1 and 2, problem presented. Verse 3, solution offered. And the, the uh, apostles here are saying, here's the solution, do it. Problem solved. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. The problem has been brought to the apostles by the people who have noticed the problem. Okay? 
The people who noticed the problem weren't the Hebrew believers. They were the Hellenistic believers. It was their widows who were being neglected. The people who brought the problem to the apostles were Hellenistic Christians as opposed to Hebrew Christians. And they say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. They want people close to the problem, people who maybe knew some of the widows, people who, these were, and I hate this term, but you see it all the time, their people, okay? Christianity is supposed to be, in Christianity, everybody's supposed to be your people. But people were identifying with the Hellenistic Jews, and it's, this is not being taught to say that that's wrong. I think it's natural that we identify with those that we know best. And these men brought the problem that they saw. And the disciples, the apostles, in their brilliance and under the influence of the Holy Spirit said, well, the people who are most going to pay attention to solving this problem are the ones who are closest to the people who have the problem. And the apostle said to these men, you who know your community, who know these widows, you who are a part of their everyday lives, pick seven good men, responsible men, wise men, men full of the Holy Spirit. And it is they that the apostles will appoint to take care of this problem. They will be the men who wait tables. And frankly, if it's for a bunch of widows, this is going to be crawling through dirt, okay? It's going to be a, it's going to be a tough job. Different translation. Oh, and here's another thing. Different translations of this passage don't say waiting tables. Some of them say handling finances, okay? And they're not wrong in that translation. The If I didn't forget everything after I preach it, okay? If I was young enough to retain knowledge, I would end up being a very, very smart person. The, Ita- the Italian, the Latin word, for, uh, the Greek word for table here is the word trapeza, okay? Well, trapeza can mean blanket, it can mean a river bank, it can mean a food table, which it normally does. But when Jesus came in on triumphantly to Jerusalem and went to the temple and overturned the the tables of the money changers, he overturned the money changers' trapezes. Okay? It's where money was handled. It was where finances were dealt. Remember that in the usage of these words, because it means so many different things, it's in the context that it's being used that determines what it is. And in the context of taking care of the widows, both food distribution and finances are uh, mentioned. So actually the translation of the word that's used there is just as accurate to say handle the finances as 
take care of wait tables or take care of food. So I'd like to be more clear than that, but that's exactly what we get out of there. And so when you see these different translations that are you think are way off base, because most of them say distribution of food or wait tables or things like that. But some of them say handle finances. This is why. And food is money. <laughs> so I'm not going to sit here and say that those translations were wrong. One of them is a very good translation, the Holman uh, translation of the Bible, which Niels, when he was going to college, uh, they referred to it as the Southern Baptist translation of the Holy Scriptures. So the Holman is a good, good one that does translate it that way. So in the case of the apostles, did they want these seven men to wait, wait tables or handle money? And once again, we find out that the answer is yes. They wanted, they wanted to preach the word and pray. That was their calling and, and what they needed to be doing at that point in the new church's history. You might, you might say taking care of the widows is really, really important. And yes, it is. And that's why they handled it as quickly as they did. Is that the, the apostles needed to be preaching the word and teaching the new converts. Um, I said at the outset of this uh, message that despite what I've been taught all my life, this passage does not show the beginning of the office of deacon. But what we do have here, what was it Winston Churchill said, uh, beginning of the end, it's the end of the beginning. Well, what we have here is not the office of deacons being called into effect, but it is the beginnings of the office of deacon being called into effect. And I know that how. I know it because when the office of deacon gets established, they call it deacons, which does not at this point really have that much to do with what the original problem is. This episode is so early in the history of the church that this is the first time the apostles thought about something other than the preaching of the word. A few weeks before, they were concerned with fulfilling the commission given to them by Jesus to make disciples of all men. I'm sure that as with all organic movements or organizations, no thought at all was given to any kind of administration. Okay? No hierarchy, no administration. And suddenly, complaints arise and something has to be done. Now, in a 25,000 person church, Okay, if the apostles handed them this themselves, that's 2,000 members or a mega church per apostle to be taken care of. What would they possibly get done if they were handling the day-to-day ministrations of the body? As it was, with 15% of the population being Hellenists, we're looking at 3,000 people that uh, uh, these seven men are being put in charge of. It's, that's like eight, uh, 400 people a person. And not all of those were the widows, of course. But it is much more approachable to break it down into the Hellenistic 
spirit-filled men to handle 3,000 people's needs than it is for the apostles to handle 2,000. There would be no time for the apostles for anything but managing church problems. And their ministry would fail due to their success. Due to the numbers that were coming in, the apostles would fail in their ministry. The solution to this, arrived at by the apostles, was simple and elegant. Hellenistic Jews, like I said, made up 10 to 20%, and the figures I use are 15%, just to split it down the middle like uh, Solomon. The solution of the seven godly men to handle the problem gave them each a load of 400 members, not each of whom was a widow. Now, as with so much in the Bible, the New Testament doesn't tell us how they handled this problem. We don't know what they did. We are also left to understand that it was handled because the problem is not mentioned again. Likewise, we do not know when the office of deacon came into being. We don't know how it evolved from this early church situation to actually being a church office. By the time the letters of Paul are written, both the church at Philippi and to Timothy, uh, it's roughly 63 AD. They give a 62 to 64, so once again we're splitting it in half, saying 63 AD. By this time, the roles of pastor and deacon are clearly defined as as spiritual needs versus physical needs. Deacons are to take care of everything in the church that was outside the purview of the pastors who, quote, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, as 2 Timothy 4.2 says. And with that said, the responsibilities of a deacon are not clearly listed or defined. Have you ever noticed that? We've always expected deacons to do everything. Truthfully, this is why it is imperative that a deacon be a godly, spirit-filled man, like the apostles said at the very beginning. Only that man recognizes the line between elder and deacon. I've heard of deacons coming to think that they own their church. And I've seen it in person. And it's caused troubles because a new pastor would come in and the deacons didn't like things that were immediately done. And they opposed the ministry. And this is of a man that I considered a friend Till the day he died, okay? And deacons coming to own a church. But so do pastors come to think that they own a church, okay? A godly deacon realizes they serve their church and its master, Jesus Christ, as through the dirt, on their stomach, as it were, handling concrete matter with compassionate delicacy. That is what they do. Modern Christianity seems to follow one of two models. Strict organization and going with the spirit. Okay, my favorite story of this is when I was up at Twin Peaks Church. uh, One of my closest friends that I still see to this day when I go back east is named Ken Gallagher. He was the church administrator. We were going to put on 
a film series in the church on Sunday nights. We did not have the equipment to do so. So, and I can say this now. So Ken went to the uh, a Baptist church that is no longer a Baptist church. And they had the equipment. And he said to them, he said, we'd like to borrow your equipment. And they said, well, okay, well, you're going to have to come to a meeting. And then we're going to have to have a meeting. And then that meeting is going to have to meet with the pastor. And it went on and on and on on what was going to have to be done to help this ministry. And so Ken then says, I, he then went to Calvary Chapel to the pastor and whoever runs Calvary Chapel and said, we'd like to borrow it. And it was, oh, brother, we'll give you anything we have. You can have it now. We don't care when we get it back. Do we have this? Okay. <laughs> to the point they didn't know if they had it or not. One had a hierarchy and structure. One had the spirit of the Lord moving within them and they had no idea if they had the equipment or not. I think we didn't show that film series. Anyway, a church needs both of these approaches. Okay? A church needs spirit-led teaching. It needs a spirit-led body. But it also needs at least a modicum of organization. In this way, all the needs of a congregation can be met. In Philippians 1.1, Paul writes, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. These are the two church officers, overseers, pastors, and deacons. No matter what church hierarchy has added to these, whether it be archbishops or cardinals or the pope, Nevertheless, the only two biblical church officers are pastor and deacon. And though it sounds like I just took a swipe at the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church does recognize that there are only two church offices. And that is priest, which we would disagree with because I believe in the priesthood of all believers, as the Bible teaches, and deacons. That's the only two they have. The others are not church offices. They're roles. In 1 Timothy 3... Paul gives the qualifications for these offices, and we've read them before. Uh, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with a conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The qualifications for overseer and deacon largely overlap. One difference, the other is that a deacon need not be able to teach. Now, this does not mean that a deacon shouldn't be able to teach, just that an elder must indeed. Of the seven men chosen to solve the problem of the Hellenistic widows, two of them are among the most famous Christian teachers of all time. Stephen was one of them. We're going to be covering Stephen here in the uh, coming weeks. And Philip of uh, the Ethiopian eunuch fame. Philip the evangelist, as he's known throughout history, is one of the others. The evangelist sounds like perhaps he could teach, right? But despite the difference in the qualifications between pastors and deacons, one thing is clear from our passage today. Both offices are necessary for a correctly functioning church. The teaching ministry of a church gets the spotlight. I mean, we've all heard about celebrity pastors, right? John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, uh, Chuck Swindoll, John Piper, and on and on, just to name a few. There has never been a celebrity deacon in the history of the church. Trust me on this, okay? And if you doubt me, name one, okay? There's never been a celebrity deacon except with God. In 1 Timothy 3.13, Paul says, again, those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. As the Apostle, Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 4.10-11, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And I like that. Those who speak and those who minister, elder and deacon. Amen. Let's close in prayer.